Hello and welcome to the 1740 podcast. I'm Alexander War and I've got with me Maudie Lowe. Hi. And Maudie and I, for those who are familiar with this podcast, usually interview a third party, but on this occasion we're going to talk to one another and try to provide an introductory level uh, explanation of what is known as the authorship problem. What is it? Uh, why is there an authorship problem? And who does it concern? So the format we're going to take is uh, Maudie's going to ask me, me a few questions. I'll try and answer them as best I can. And it might develop into a conversation. But I hope you enjoy it. We haven't planned anything, really. We're just going to use our bank of knowledge mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. see if we can get to the bottom of this extraordinary subject. And if it works, please spread this around, encourage people to listen to it, especially those who are on the edge of doubting the truth of who wrote Shakespeare's works, but need a bit of encouragement. Uh, so let's go with it. Maudie. Yes, well, it is a huge pleasure to interview my dear friend, Alexander, on the authorship question today. Um, as you mentioned, the episode is an introduction for those listeners who are just discovering um, or learning about the authorship question. And we hope this episode will help you on your journey. And if you do have any questions, please do post them on our social media and podcast platforms. So without further ado, Alexander, what is the authorship question? In a nutshell, the authorship question is this. Is William Shakespeare a pseudonym? That's fundamentally the question. And, of course, nobody disputes that there was actually a guy around at the time who came from Stratford-upon-Avon whose name was William Shakespeare. Now, you may think I'm splitting hairs here. William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, well, it's all the same, isn't it? Probably not, actually. Shakespeare is a name that derives probably from Saxby. Um, Shakespeare, obviously, is a name that derives from a verb and a noun, to shake a spear. And the really interesting thing about the name William Shakespeare is if you were a learned person at the end of the 16th century, you would instantly think that William Shakespeare is a pseudonym because it's an obvious allusion to Pallas, the Greek god, Pallas Minerva, as she was known by the Romans. And to the Romans, she was the patron goddess of poetry and plays and inspiration for writers. And many, many writers at the time, you don't have to be Christian, would have said, oh, Pallas, oh, Minerva, help me write my poem. And so why is William Shakespeare an allusion to Pallas Minerva? Well, she was born out of the head of Zeus, according to the myth, shaking her spear. And she was famous for shaking her spear. And in fact, palain in Greek comes from to shake a spear. And the most famous spear she ever shook was at Ilium. Funny, sounds a bit like William, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, Ilium, uh, which is, of course, Troy. And of course, we're talking about William Shakespeare. So the will at Ilium that shook the spear of Achilles, enabling him to slay Hector. So to any learned person right back then in the late uh, 16th century um, would have known that William Shakespeare is an allusion to the patron goddess of playwrights, a Pallas Minerva, a very obvious pseudonym. Who, who was the first person who questioned the authorship of the works? So the name William Shakespeare never appeared on any literary work. 
until 1593. And that in itself is quite interesting because it's quite a late date. And as I've already said, people would have looked at that and said, who is this William Shakespeare? Uh, straight away, who is he? Um, the name appeared at the end of a dedication of a poem called Venus and Adonis, dedicated to the Earl of Southampton. And it's in the dedication, it's signed off William Shakespeare. Now, the mere fact that this was dedicated to the Earl of Southampton tells us straight away that whoever Shakespeare was, he must have been known within the rather small aristocratic circle. If he's known to the Earl of Southampton, one expects he's known to a few people at court, certainly the Earl of Southampton. The other thing we can tell from Venus and Adonis of 1593 is that whoever wrote it uh, was classically trained. Um, this is this is a poem that's based uh, on a story of Ovid. It shows some quite close readings of Ovid, so clearly he was something of a Latin scholar. So we've got two things now. We've got a Latin scholar who's known to the court, who's going by the name of William Shakespeare. So in answer to your question, I would say that right off the bat there, right back in 1593 when Venus and Adonis first appeared, people would have been questioning who this William Shakespeare was because there was no literary figure known as William Shakespeare in that day. There's no evidence whatsoever. And we have so much evidence of all the literary figures at the time, who they knew, who they cavorted with. All the playwrights all knew each other. There's so much evidence that they personally met each other or worked together. But nobody knew anyone called William Shakespeare. And that's phenomenal. You know, when you think how important Shakespeare is, how he's regarded as, without exaggeration, the greatest writer of all time, the greatest poet, thinker, philosopher, and nobody knew him at the time. So what does that tell us? It tells us that he was someone other than someone called William Shakespeare. And there were eight William Shakespeare's at least banging around in the 1590s. And one of them, if you wish to call him Shakespeare as opposed to Shakespeare, mm. was one who lived in Stratford-upon-Avon, upon whom all of these marvellous works have been fathered wrongly. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it's a joke, but it's the great joke that people sometimes don't get. Could you tell us who was William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare of Stratford? Can you, you tell us a little bit about what we actually do know? Yeah, we, we know a fair bit about him. And the reason for that is we've dug and dug and dug and dug, turning every single shred of paper upside down to find anything we can. Unfortunately, in all the records of William Shakespeare of Stratford, which I think amount to about 70 pieces of information, not one of them tells us that he was a writer. We have evidence that he had dealings in land. Uh, he had a small holding up at Stratford-upon-Avon, that he lent money to certain people, uh, that he was a ruffian in some ways. There was There's a restraining order keeping, order keeping him away from people. There's a will. Um, the will, again, should tell us something about his literary career. If he was at all literary, he should, for instance, have had some books were very expensive. You'd normally leave books in your will to someone uh, or manuscripts or anything literary or musical instruments. I mean, William Shakespeare, the writer, was extremely musical and there's no evidence that William Shakespeare of Stratford had anything to do with uh, music. So, we, as I say, we know a bit about him and he was a businessman. Now, here comes the tricky bit. 
is he does appear to have been connected with the London theatre. Um, but in what capacity? I mean, as a playwright, there's no real evidence that he was, a, a, as I say, enjoying his lifetime. There's no evidence he was a writer of any sort, let alone a playwright and poet. So what are the records that connect him to the theatre? He seems to have bought in, uh, possibly as an investment, to receive money, which you could do in those days. You could invest in, in a theatre and take, for instance, money from the stalls or the circle or something like that. And he seems to have been a co-investor with some of the actors in the Globe. I don't think there's much doubt about that. But we mustn't jump to conclusions. We mustn't therefore say, well, anyone who invests in a theatre must be a playwright, let alone the greatest playwright in the world. There are today hundreds, thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are connected to the theatre, but that doesn't mean they're playwrights. You know, so we don't have the evidence that he's he, he's a playwright at all. It would be quite nice to have anything in, in the will or any documentation that shows he's remotely literate. I don't mean literary, I mean literate. Could he actually write? Now, there are three signatures on that will. One of them is almost illegible now because it's old and wonky, but we are able to see that the uh, way that the name Shakespeare is spelt is, is, is different each time. There's very strong evidence to suggest that that's not anyway his signature. We're told there are three signatures on the will. And the reason for that is that people in those days, many, many people, I mean, 80, 90% of people, particularly in rural areas, didn't actually know how to read and write. And it's no disgrace, but it's obviously slightly embarrassing to those people in the present day who are saying he's the greatest playwright in the world, if it turns out that he couldn't actually write. And the evidence that he couldn't write is pretty strong. Uh, and you only have to look at those signatures. Now, we know for a fact that his father couldn't write. He couldn't sign his name. He did it with a cross, known as a marksman. And his daughter, uh, Judith, also signs her name with a little pigtail mark, uh, which is odd if, you, if you're claiming to be William Shakespeare, the greatest writer in the world, who wrote for instance, The Tempest, in which Prospero takes such pride in the fact that he's educated his daughter. Uh, if the greatest writer in the world didn't even bother to educate his daughter to be able to write. Actually, had two daughters, Judith, who signed her name with a mark, and very controversially, Susanna, who some people say, oh, she knew how to sign her name. But actually, the problem with the surviving signatures of, of, of Susanna is exactly the same as some of the problems we have with the surviving signatures of William Shakespeare. Namely, they appear on legal documents, and legal documents would have the, the main document itself, which goes blah, 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 legal, and then it would have usually a ribbon which connects to a seal. And a clerk, if you couldn't write, would put your name, if it were William Shakespeare, on the seal ribbon. If you could sign your own name, you signed it in full on the legal document. You don't just write William Shakespeare on a ribbon, because what the ribbon's doing is telling you it's, it's the clerk who's confirming that the seal belongs to William Shakespeare. So it's not the signature. And so we have that a number of times. Or not on the will. On the will, we've actually got the signature on the document. But as I say, it's spelt three different ways. And someone called Jane Cox, who was keeper of the public records, but she put it on the public record herself, that in her opinion, these signatures were all done by a different person.
So we're left, it's an embarrassing situation. Greatest writer in the world, and we can't be sure that any of the six so-called signatures actually came from his hand, from his pen. So, which means he was probably functionally illiterate, like his parents and like his children. And could you tell me a little bit about the interlineation in the will, um, about the rings as well? Yes. So what you're talking about is the only memorable aspect of the will, which is in all other respects, blah de blah blah copied out from a book of how you write wills. So it's got nothing personal really in it at all, apart from the names of a few people. But the interesting parts, which are always memorable, once heard, never forgotten, is one, I leave my second best bed to my wife, which of course has had yes. hundreds of scholars writing books about this and why why he would do such a thing. And he leaves, uh, I think it's a bit of money, uh, to two people, one called Hemmings and one called Condal, who are both associated with the theatre, in order to buy memorial rings to remember him by. Now, both the sentence about the second best bed to the wife and the memorial rim, rings to Hemmings and Condal are interlineations. That means the, the will's been written out, and then a second thought, oh, I want to, I want to leave this money to Hemmings and Condal, and so it's been jammed in between uh, two lines that were there before. Now, normally, if you're going to add something to a will, you would put a little signature or something in the margin to attest it, to say, I really want to say this. It's not just some crook or fraud uh, who's playing with the will. Now, we happen to know that a crook and fraud did play with that will. And, and how we know it is because of the name Hamlet. Um, William Shakespeare of Stratford had friends called Judith, after whom he named his daughter, and Hamnet Sadler. And they were neighbours in Stratford-upon-Avon. And so we're pretty sure that William Shakespeare's children, Hamnet and Judith, who were twins, mm -hmm. were called after Hamnet and Judith Shakespeare. And the name is Hamnet. It is not Hamlet. And we know that very well because Hamnet Sadler actually signs the will himself as someone who's sort of testifying to it. And he signs it Hamnet. And in the course of the will, Sh Sh William Shakespeare of Stratford has left something. I can't remember what it is now. It's some small token or a bit of money to Hamnet Sadler. And if you look with any care at all, you can see that in, in the will itself, the name Hamnet has been altered. Someone's tried to put an L on it to add to the N, to give it Hamlet, to, to associate him with the playwright. And I would be fairly certain that those interlineations to, to Hemmings and Condal, not 100% certain, but pretty sure, that interlineation to Hemmings and Condal and my second best bed to my wife were done by the same person who altered Hamnet to Hamlet. So they fiddled with it because they found the will and thought this is absolutely boring as hell. There's nothing in it to indicate even a spark of the personality of the person who wrote those plays. So what can we do about it? I suspect that the man who did that was called George Virtue, but that's another story, and he did it in the 18th century. What made you question William of Stratford as the author of the works? I think that anybody who reads a standard work on William Shakespeare anybody with a mind that's remotely alert and awake and uh, challenging will 
get the impression that there's something deeply wrong, deeply, deeply wrong with any biography of William Shakespeare of Stratford that makes him out to be a famous writer. And the people who have written these biographies are themselves deeply aware of the problem. So what they've had to do is paste it all up with a whole lot of stuff about contemporary history in the 19th at the end of the 1590s, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth did that, somebody else did that. Well, it's not really telling us about the biography of William Shakespeare. And one person who did not believe in it uh, at all uh, was Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote a brilliant book on it. And in that book, he said, uh, biography of Shakespeare is like a brontosaur of nine bones and 600 barrels of plaster of Paris. <laughs> so you basically got you literally nine little points you can make that do not connect him to literature in any way, but tell us how he bought a field or made a loan up in Stratford-upon-Avon. And then into that, you just fill and fill and fill and say, he probably did this. He may have done this. He may have met this poet. He may have met the Earl of Southampton. And it's it's a it's a terrible mess. And then you hear people say, well, you know, that's because it was a long time ago. It's 400 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to get information on anyone that long ago. But it's not. That's the interesting point. And you can actually take a sample of contemporary poets at the time. A very good scholar called Diana Price did exactly this in a book called Shakespeare's Unorthodox Biography. So you can take 20 or 30 contemporary poets, poets who, you know, everybody's heard of Shakespeare, but poets who people really haven't heard much about or haven't read, people like Henry Chettle, uh, Michael Drayton, and I, I can go on with lists of these people, and many of us haven't really even heard of them, but you can go into their records and you can find contemporary records that prove without any doubt that they were poets. And the word poet... It appeared on bills. I mean, Ben Johnson was sent bills and things saying, Ben Johnson, the poet. Uh, there's no such thing for, for William Shakespeare. Nobody ever suggested in his lifetime that he was a poet. He never said he was a poet. He never claimed to have written anything. His children never said he wrote anything, and his heirs never said he wrote anything. And as I said, he left nothing that suggested that he was a writer. Uh, and that is very, very, very awkward when you start comparing him to his contemporaries. Stratford is a very interesting place in itself. It feels a little bit like a a fun fair. Well, it is. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah. the house and the truth behind that? Yeah. So, so Stratford-upon-Avon is a town in the British Midlands, quite pretty, um, Beware of it, though, if you go there. It's actually the second biggest tourist site in England, I think, outside of London, where people go, uh, because we're being told it's the birthplace of William Shakespeare and it's where he was brought up. Now, when you'd go into Stratford, you say, oh, that's quaint. Look at that lovely Tudor building. Oh, look at that Tudor building. Oh, another Tudor building. Well, the whole thing is completely Tudor. And you think, well, that's odd, until you realise that actually it's all bogus. And a lot of these Tudor buildings, or so-called Tudor buildings, were put together in the 19th century when people started getting interested in saying this is the town associated with, with William Shakespeare. So you get a lot of what's called mock Tudor, Victorian revival mock Tudor, and particularly amongst that, actually, is the birthplace, the so-called birthplace 
of William Shakespeare, which was a building with, with yeah, definitely ancient origins. Um, it was a kind of butcher's shop with a pub slung next to it, and it was a real sort of odd little hovel. And the Victorians decided, uh, well, maybe a little bit before, maybe the 18th century, they decided this was the building where William Shakespeare was born. And then they decided it wasn't posh enough because it didn't seem right. So, in fact, in 1858, they knocked the whole thing down and bashed down all the buildings that were to the left and the right of it, leaving well, not even leaving the little hovel and the butcher's shop. They just totally rebuilt the whole thing. So it's quite fun. I, I went up to Stratford uh, the other day and watched all the tourists coming out. A lot of American tourists that had guided tours, and I just went up to them and said, did you enjoy that? They said, yeah, we, we had really good. We really loved it. It was a lovely, quaint little house. And I said, do you know when it was built? And they said, oh, no, but William Shakespeare was born in there. And I said, well, it was born in 1850. It was, it was built in 1858. Do you know when... William Shakespeare, or Shakespeare of Stratford, was born. It was 1564, so I'm not quite sure how he was born in that building that was put up in 1858. And poor tourists looked very crestfallen, but uh, they were interested to hear about it. And so dotted around the town, you get all these different buildings that belong to something which I believe is a rather crooked organisation called the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Three words, Shakespeare birthplace and trust. Each of those need to be thought about quite carefully in relation to what's going on up in Stratford. Shakespeare Birthplace Trust is, as its name implies, it's an educational trust. It's a charity and it was set up by an act of parliament. So they're in quite a powerful position. And the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust runs the birthplace, or the so-called birthplace. That is the building that was erected in 1858, which they claim Shakespeare was born in. And not only that, they've gone around the town, because they've got quite a lot of money, they've gone around the town buying up other buildings. Uh, so they bought this one, which is a mock Tudor building, really put together in 1958, but it had a, a lot of... It Actually, it was a it was a Georgian school, a school for girls. It then burnt down in 1872. Then it was put up by the Victorians to look like a, a, a Tudor building. And then it was hugely renovated in the 50s. And they claim, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust claims, that this place is where Shakespeare's daughter, Susanna, and her husband, who's called Dr. Hall, lived. But there's no evidence at all. And then they bought uh, a cottage where they say that Shakespeare's mother, Mary Arden, was brought up. Now, they knew full well that she was not brought up there. All the records of that property, we know exactly who owned it, and a completely different person, nothing to do with Ardens at all. Uh, so then they got embarrassed eventually and bought a little farm next door to it and said, oh, no, don't worry, sorry, we realised we did make a mistake, actually. Uh, Shakespeare's mother wasn't brought up in that house. We thought she was, that we've been charging tourists to come and see for the last 35 years. But don't worry, we've suddenly realised she was actually born in this house instead next door. We've just bought it, which is a Victorian farm, so obviously she wasn't brought there, born there. And then they invented a whole lot of cock and bull to try and pretend that that's where she was born. But so people pay to have tickets to go there as well. And they also own a little house at Shottery, where they claim that Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway, was brought up. Again, no concrete evidence that she was brought up there at all. 
Uh, and in fact, that one rather burnt down in the 60s anyway, so 1960s. So, so again, we're looking at more bogosity. But basically, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust has the whole of Stratford-upon-Avon under its command, and it makes many millions of pounds by the huge numbers of tourists that go there every year. And they've known for a very long time that this is all rubbish, and that's what's particularly worrying about them, really, uh, in... 1891, the curator of the Shakespeare Birthplace Museum resigned. He was called Joseph Skipsey. He resigned and he said, I cannot carry on these lies any anymore. It's too embarrassing. And the tourists come in and I have to point at a chair and pretend that it belonged to William Shakespeare and a, something made out of mulberry, which was made of a tree that he did or didn't plant. And he said, the whole thing stinks, he said. It stinks in the nostrils of anyone who cares about the truth. And Skipsy resigned. This is in 1891. Of course, they're still carrying on um, uh, selling all these things and getting all the tourists to go there that keeps on giving <laughs> yes yes exactly well you know about the mulberry tree don't you there was a it, it was a legend that uh william shakespeare of stratford planted a mulberry tree in his garden and that this mulberry tree was cut down by a furious man called gastrel who, who was in a temper because he bought the house that william shakespeare lived in and knocked it down and then everybody said you can't knock that house down because william shakespeare apparently lived in it which he didn't and then Gastrel got in a temper and sawed down the mulberry tree, which was supposedly planted by him. And then a lot of do-gooders started coming up with little artefacts made of mulberry wood, each of them saying that this was the very mulberry tree that Shakespeare planted. And, of course, millions of souvenirs were being sold. And this is going right back. It was the 19th century. Mulberry souvenirs were being sold at every little corner in Stratford-upon-Avon, saying this was made from the original mulberry tree planted by William Shakespeare. Wow. Yeah, been completely misleading the public. Oh, the whole thing's misleading, and you know there is a very old room there which served as a school, and they say, "Oh, well, this is the school where William Shakespeare went." But once again, there's no evidence that he went to any school. They're working backwards. What they're doing is saying these plays are very learned and very clever, and whoever wrote these plays must have been able to read quite a lot of Latin. He must have been. And therefore, William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon must have gone to this school. But they're working backwards because William Shakespeare of Stratford wasn't the writer in the first place. Now let's ask the question, must he have gone to that school? Well, some people say, yes, he must have, because his father was for one year bailiff, which kind of means town mayor or something. And the bailiff had the privilege that they were allowed to send their children to school for free. So therefore, William Shakespeare of Stratford, he must have gone to the school. But no, that's not, it's not logical to say that. William Shakespeare of Stratford's father was called John Shakespeare, and he owned a little bit of land, and he had, well, I can't remember now, was it eight children? But anyway, William, William was the oldest and was the oldest boy. And as I said before, the father, John Shakespeare, couldn't read or write. Now, what's the most important thing in those days to a man who's got some land, who's got some children um, and doesn't know or care how to read and write? The most important thing is to get his son, particularly his oldest son, to get onto that farm to work out how to use it and how to deal with the sheep and how to deal with it. It's not to send him to read and write. But in those days, you know, to, to read and write, you wanted to be a, a scholar, a clergyman, a lawyer, a clerk. Uh, there's no indication that any of the Shakespeare children went into any of those professions or wanted anything to do with any of it whatsoever. 
so I think it's more logical and more likely to suggest that John Shakespeare, whether or not for one year he could have educated his son for free, chose not to educate his son um, in order that he would help work the farm and carry the heavy things and be what all sons were in those days, uh, a help around the farm and would eventually inherit that land and manage it himself, which indeed William Shakespeare did and did quite well. And he ended up much better off than his father was. And when we move over to the church in Stratford and the monument in there, um, that's that's changed a few times over the years, hasn't it? Many, many changes have been undergone, uh, have undergone in that church. Uh, churches to the st- uh, changes to the steeple, changes to almost every single part of it you can possibly imagine. The graves have been moved around. The Shakespeare family graves are an extremely suspicious place. Uh, they are in the absolute place of honour, uh, right opposite the uh, altar in the chancel. And there's nothing like that. You you can't go to any church in England and find something like that really going on for, you know, unless you're pretty grand. Um, and the, the, the Shakespeare's weren't grand. Uh, there aren't any burial places, any graves of that antiquity lined up like that. And when one looks into it, you see that there's a lot of juggling went on in the 18th century and the 19th century, uh, but possibly even earlier. The vicar of Stratford-upon-Avon was pretty well sacked uh, for taking money, putting it into his pocket in order to uh, decide who got buried in the chancel. Now, my guess is he was paid some money to put those Shakespeare graves there, Uh Anyway, he was sacked, but we don't know the names of which graves were they that he was asked to put there. And haven't they scanned the graves as well and found that there's... Um, yeah, so let, 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 let's concentrate. So he's got his sister and his mother and people like that buried around him. Uh, but the grave itself, let's look at that. You've got, you've got a gravestone that is three and a half foot by three foot. So it's too small to cover the whole place where a lying body would have been. Um, everyone says everyone was smaller in those days. Well, it's not necessarily true, actually. People have looked into that. The doorways were smaller, and so people have assumed that the people were smaller. Actually, the average height of someone in Shakespeare's day was five foot seven. So a man. So that uh, the question now is, is there a five foot seven man uh, buried underneath that uh, gravestone? Now, before we even look into that, what is written on the gravestone? I can't necessarily quote it to you by heart, but it doesn't have his name on it. It doesn't say William Shakespeare, famous writer, lies buried here. It says something like, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man who spares my bones and cursed be he who moves my bones. Sorry, I haven't quite said it right, but essentially it's a curse on anybody who dares to lift that gravestone and look underneath it. Why? Well, because there's nothing underneath it. That's why. So the best way to stop anyone probing and looking is to lay a curse on anyone who dares to lift it up. Now, funnily enough, it had been lifted up. And a very famous American writer in the beginning of the 19th century, I think about 1819, he went round to Stratford-upon-Avon. And there he met the sexton of the church and chatted away to him, was talking about the grave. And the sexton said, well, a short while ago, actually, we were doing some works on the thing and we lifted up the stone and there was nothing underneath it at all. 
Nothing. No, no coffin, no body, no dust, no shroud, no nails, nothing. Well, it gets even more amazing, actually, because in 2016, which was the 400th anniversary of the death of William Shakespeare of Stratford, a television company called Channel 4 came in and passed over that grave what's called a deep penetrating radar. And that radar can pick up hard things like nails or if there's a metal or coffin or something like that. And what the radar showed, the vicar wouldn't allow them to lift the stone, but what the radar that looked under the stone showed was that the area there was no bigger than the stone itself. So in other words, it was three foot by three and a half foot. So you can't fit a body in even if you want to fit a body in. And not only that, it was only three foot deep. So it's a joke. You've got a stone sitting on a, a tiny little hole, which is a joke. It's got no one in it. With cursed be you if you try and probe and look into here on it. So Channel 4 panicked. The birth, Shakespeare Birthplace Trust panicked. And they had quite a lot, seemed to have had quite a lot of control over this television program because the man called Colts, who was a so-called... Um, well, that's mean to say so-called. He was a uh, an archaeologist, but he was hired by the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. So Coles came up with this preposterous theory. He said, oh, I, I think I know what, what happened here. I think someone came in at dead of night, maybe in the 19th century, and stole the skull of William Shakespeare because it would be a wonderful souvenir. And by stealing the skull, he caused the grave to collapse inwards because, oh, yes, the skull was supporting the whole structure, I'd bet, and collapse inwards. And therefore, they had to make the whole thing smaller and stronger. And that's how it happened. And that's why there's no bones in it. Now, the story gets more and more interesting because not only do we now know that under that stone that curses you if you dare to look into it is nothing, then we start looking at the monument because there's a monument fixed to the wall just above that stone, which is a, mo a monument to William Shakespeare. And people might be able to see that in their mind's eye because it's quite famous. So it's got a, a bust of so-called Shakespeare on it, which looks ridiculous and gross and fatuous and very, very stupid. And people have remarked for hundreds of years that it looks like a complacent pork butcher, <laughs> um, a fat, boring, stultified, bald-looking man uh, sits upright uh, with a quill, a goose quill in his hand, which, by the way, is not carved. That's a real goose quill, which is which is put there, so it's not part of the original carving. Um, writing on a piece of paper. And if you look carefully at that piece of paper, there's no writing on it at all. And I think the person who put that there knew damn well why there's no writing at all, because they're, they're fraudulently celebrating someone uh, who was not a writer. If you go back to the earliest depictions of this monument, uh, there's a marvellous engraving by someone called Wenceslas Holler in a book of 1656 called The Antiquities of Warwickshire. You will see there an engraving of this very monument, and it doesn't have a quill in it at all. It doesn't have a piece of paper. You've got a kind of monkey, really, guy looking like a monkey with very sh sloping shoulders, with his hands resting on a wool pack. Now, we know that William of Stratford uh, was involved in wool. He had a lot of sheep, and his father had a lot of sheep dealings. 
So it seems that the earliest depictions of this monument were showing a man who was a wool dealer, possibly quite a prosperous one, and that somebody at some point changed the monument to add a sheet of paper and shoved a goose quill in his hand to make him look like the famous writer. But that was never part of the original design. Now, we get to the really interesting bit, is what is written on that monument just beneath this controversial statue. And there's an inscription, an epitaph, which begins with two lines of Latin. And nowadays, most people can't read Latin. Uh, and even in those days, uh, it's quite uh, difficult because this Latin is very cunning and it's making an illusion. It talks about the uh, Eudicio Pilium, which means Pilius with his judgment. Who's Pilius? Pilius, an ancient Greek king known as Nestor. So why do we start off talking about William Shakespeare on his monument saying Pilius with his judgment? Then it says Socrates with his genius. What has Socrates got to do with William Shakespeare? Kind of nothing. Socrates was an ancient Greek philosopher. He never wrote anything. He spoke and taught, and his pupils and Plato and people wrote down what he said, but he wasn't a writer. And Shakespeare was not particularly excited or interested in Socrates. And then it gives another name. It says Arte Maronem. Maronem is, is, is Maro, who's Virgil. So now we can say, oh, 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 right, okay, we're now talking about a poet. That makes sense, because William Shakespeare's a poet, and, and they're saying with the art of Virgil. But there's a problem there as well, because William Shakespeare was not particularly interested in Virgil. Uh, everybody knows that William Shakespeare's famous classical poet was Ovid. So why doesn't it say with the art of Ovid? At least that would make sense because Shakespeare loved Ovid and uh, emulated Ovid in many ways. But no, it's with the art of Virgil. Now that raises a question, a very interesting question. Who, which poet was really associated with Virgil if it's not William Shakespeare? Well, actually, it's Edmund Spencer who called himself the Virgil of England. Everybody knew him as the Virgil of England, as R. Marrow. So is this relevant or am I just going off on one? Well, beneath the Latin, there's some English. Now listen to this English very carefully. It says, stay passenger. That means you who are passing by this grave. Stay passenger. Why goest thou by so fast? Read if thou, if thou canst, whom envious death hath placed within this monument, Shakespeare. Now, that doesn't make much sense, does it? No. <laughs> uh, the English, the syntax is all wrong. The words are all in the odd place. Stay, passenger, why goes thou by so why goest thou by so fast? Read if thou canst, whom envious death hath placed within this monument, Shakespeare. So the word order's odd. Already we're alerted to something strange going on there. Yeah. Now, why does he say, read if thou canst? It doesn't mean if you know how to read read this, because you wouldn't even be able to read that bit if you didn't know how to read. So it doesn't mean that. Read if thou canst means work out if you can, figure out if you can. You know, if you read in, if you read into someone's expression, you're reading what they're thinking. So it's that form of read. Read if, you're, if thou canst. If you can, figure out, work out whom envious death hath placed within this monument, 
Shakespeare, there's another little trick there, because what he's doing is giving you a riddle. He's asking you whom envious death hath placed with Shakespeare. In other words, who is Shakespeare buried with? That's the question. And there's a hidden riddle right there. Read if thou canst, whom envious death hath placed with Shakespeare. But he's confused it by blocking it all up with in this monument. Now, I first got onto this because I was staring and staring and staring at this ruddy epitaph, and I knew that it was holding back some secrets. I just knew it. But I couldn't work out how and what the secret was, so I copied it and I had it by my bedside every night. And the weirdest thing about it was within this monument. Now, if he's buried in the monument, you would say within this monument, that would be written as one word, but it's written with space, in this monument, Shakespeare. So I had it by my bedside, and every night for about five or six minutes before I went to sleep, I'd pick it up and look at it. Nah, still can't get it, put it back. Next next night, go to bed, pick it up, looking at it, and I was staring and staring at within this monument. I said, there's something odd about that. And then I suddenly remembered, because I read music at university, and I had a slightly mad professor. And the professor used to give these lectures. He said, don't bother listening to music. He had some odd northern accent. He said, don't bother listening to music. Listen to the silences. Listen to the rests. And his idea was that the silences in the music, the rests are what informed you about the real inner meaning of the music. So I looked at this thing again on the monument, with space in this monument. Why is that space between with and in? And then I suddenly realised, I suddenly got it. It was it was staring me in the face because he wants you to say in this monument. Remember, he's asked you to read if thou canst. Where? Read where? In this monument. Read in the monument where Shakespeare's, but who he's buried with. That's the riddle. So I could I could rephrase it. He says, read if thou canst in this monument whom envious death hath placed with Shakespeare. In other words, figure out by reading this monument who Shakespeare's buried with. That's the riddle. Right, now once you've seen there's a riddle there, you get really excited, and you think if there's a riddle and it's in this monument, the answer's on the monument. And the answer had to be, straight away I knew it, the answer had to be in that Latin. And I'll tell you why I knew it had to be there, because the second line of the Latin begins terra tegit, and that means earth covers. So you've been asked to look for who Shakespeare's buried with, and right above it, in Latin, it says the earth covers. So someone's buried. So so who's buried? So as I've just explained, we've got Pileus with his judgment, ancient Greek king. Ooh, where was he buried? Ooh, don't know. Look it up. Find Google it. Nobody knows where he's buried, so that's a problem. Two, Socrates with his genius. Ooh, where's Socrates buried? Uh, whoops, nobody knows where he's buried either. Ooh, problem. A three, Virgil. And there's a great controversy about where Virgil was buried, actually. Some people he said said he's at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, and someone says he's about five miles distant from there, and everyone quarrels about where Virgil's buried. So in point of fact, nobody knows where any of those people are buried. And we're being asked in this riddle to work out, if you can, who Shakespeare's buried with. So clearly Shakespeare is not buried in ancient Greece with Pileus or with Socrates or by or, or by Mount Vesuvius in, in Naples with Virgil. So we've got to think a bit outside of the box here. So why are those three names? Well, I've kind of given it away in something I said a bit earlier. Those three names are allusions to contemporary poets who were contemporaries of Shakespeare. And you can find out very, very easily who they are. Um, Virgil, as I've said, is Edmund Spencer. 
and in his day, he was known as the Virgil of England, as our uh, marrow. Uh, he wrote poems, Virgil, uh, sorry, Spencer, that were based on Virgil. So he's clearly our English Virgil. Now, where's he buried? He's buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. Who's next to him? He's buried next to Geoffrey Chaucer, another great poet. Now, anciently, guess what used to be written on Geoffrey Chaucer's tomb? It used to say that he had the genius of Socrates. Wow. Yeah. And you can find lots of, um, of, of allusions to him. There was a man at the, in 1385 who wrote to Geoffrey Chaucer. He's a Frenchman called Eustache uh, Deschamps. And he wrote, Oh, Socrates, plan de philosophie. Oh, Socrates, filled with philosophy. He wrote that about Geoffrey Chaucer. So Geoffrey Chaucer was a poet very closely associated with Socrates and the genius of Socrates. Who is Geoffrey Chaucer buried next to in Westminster Abbey? The answer is the playwright Francis Beaumont. Now, Beaumont was known famously for his judgment, uh, and he was, it was known as the judgment of, of, of Beaumont. He was known as the ballast of judgment, uh, and all his uh, contemporaries knew him as Judicious Beaumont. So just one more time, what have we got on this madcap uh, epitaph in Stratford-upon-Avon? We've got with the judgment of Pilius, that's an allusion to Francis Beaumont, with the genius of Socrates, that's an allusion to Geoffrey Chaucer, and with the art of Marrow, that's Virgil, which is an allusion to Edmund Spencer, all three of whom are buried in exactly that order in Westminster Abbey, right? Now, just below it, you've got your riddle. Stay, passenger. Why goest thou by so fast? Read if thou canst. Figure out if you can whom envious death hath placed with Shakespeare. Work it out in this monument by reading this monument. Right? So, yeah, what have we got? We've got the monument in stratford mod avon telling you that he's actually buried in Westminster Abbey. Go to Westminster Abbey, what do you see? You see a monument erected to William Shakespeare in 1740, upon which some idiots, for which I blame the then dean of Westminster Abbey, have carved onto it in 1977. William Shakespeare is buried at Stratford-upon-Avon. So you're sent by one monument in Stratford down to Westminster and go to Westminster and it ping-pongs you back up to Stratford-upon-Avon. Well, we actually know now that he's buried in Westminster Abbey. But so back, back to the authorship question and the authorship problem. Now we've identified the riddle and its answer on the monument in Stratford-upon-Avon. The question is why? If William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon were the great writer, William Shakespeare, why not write on his monument in Stratford-upon-Avon a monument to the memory of our brilliant townsman, the illustrious and fantastic writer and playwright William Shakespeare, who lies buried in Westminster Abbey? Why can't you just write that? Why can't you just put a cenotaph to that effect? What's, what's the cover-up? You see, the minute you know there's a cover-up, then you start smelling the rat, and then the rat is everywhere in every dimension of this. Of this is an interesting question. Who who was the original monument? Do you think meant to be for? I can only give you my theory on this because nobody actually knows who paid for that monument to be put up. Nobody knows the exact year when it was put up. 
And uh, so there are quite a lot of questions about it. We know for a fact that it was up in the lifetime of Stratford Shaxper's children, uh, which makes me think that Stratford Shaxper's children, who uh, I've already said didn't know how to write, uh, I suspect they didn't know how to read, and uh, they certainly wouldn't have known how to read Latin. So I, I'm very curious about I mean, I would love to know this answer to this question. But my belief is that the monument was paid for by some clever clogses down in London who were quite deliberately allowing certain people to go off in the wrong direction vis-a-vis who William Shakespeare was. Top of my list of suspicious people is the playwright and poet Ben Johnson. And in fact, this whole thing on, on the epitaph, read if thou canst, one gets very, very similar things out of other Johnson things. He loves that sort of, you know, if you're clever enough, work this out. That's so typical of Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson, we also know, did actually design certain parts of uh, monuments. He was very interested in the plastic and pictorial arts. Uh, and it's my view that he actually designed this monument uh, probably around about uh, 1619. So William Shakespeare of Stratford dies in 1616. Um, and in 1618, that's two years later, uh, there's a guy who writes a little book about monuments and their epitaphs, and he actually covers one in the, in the church in Stratford, but it's not the Shakespeare one. And it makes one think that in 1618 that monument wasn't there because had it been, Shakespeare's so famous and it's such an interesting and weird monument that it probably would have been in this book, but it's not. So I don't think it was there till at least 1619. People say that it has to be there by 1623. And the reason for that is in 1623, a big book comes out called Shakespeare's, we know it now as Shakespeare's first folio. Folio is, is an indication of the size of the book. And a folio is quite a big book. And this came out in 1623, so that's seven years after William Shakespeare of Stratford's dead. And it's got 36 plays in it, 18 of which have never been published before, all coming under the name of William Shakespeare. And in the front of that book, there's a poem by cunning old Ben Johnson uh, saying, oh, I'm not going to ask um, Chaucer to move over and make way. Uh, I'm not going to ask... Um, Edmund Spencer to move over and make way. I'm not going to ask Beaumont to move over and make way. What's he talking about? He's talking about the three people I've just said are buried in Westminster Abbey. He says, oh, no, I'm not going to ask them to make way so you can be buried next to them. I'm not going to bother because, because your works are so splendid. You've got your monument and your works. You don't, you don't really need a, another monument, do you? That's the, basically what he's saying. So I think Ben Johnson is up to his knees in this. And I think Ben Johnson had a hand probably a very big hand in designing that monument. And and I'm pretty damn sure that he wrote that weird epitaph with that riddle in it. And that's, that is so up his street. And, and he even talks about being paid to write anagrams and weird secret cryptological things. So, you know, he was definitely in that business and, and he would have been at the forefront of putting that there. So, just finally, to, to wrap up on what I think about this monument, that, that it's a very, very clever monument um, and that Ben Johnson and the people around him would not have wanted to lie, to tell an outright lie of all places in a church carved in stone. They would not want that. So what they would want is to preserve the truth, 
while allowing the clever, the intelligent, the learned, the curious to see that truth in the words and images that are there, while other people in their innocence uh, just go off in the wrong direction. But that's not because they've told an overt or outright lie. It's because what they've said has been written in such a way that it just allows the lazy mind to accept the first surface meaning. And I'm waiting for you any minute, because everybody does, um, <laughs> to ask the $6 billion question, uh, which I can't answer. Perhaps I won't tell you what the $6 billion question is, see if you just stumble. Don't tell me what the $6 billion well, I, question is. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think the $6 billion question is what connection, if any, did William of Stratford have to this, this scam, if you want to call it a scam, fraud, if you want to be even ruder, or little game that was going on, that these amazing plays in any way got connected to him? What what part did he play? Was he aware? Did he ever stand up and pretend that he was a great writer? Now that I think we can answer with a, with certainty. He didn't. I think we can be absolutely sure of that because everybody who knew him would have known that it was unlikely he could even read or write. And before anybody says to me, oh, but he was an actor, and how could actors act parts if they couldn't read their parts and learn them? That's not how actors worked in those days. Uh, actors were read the lines to them by the poets, so the poets were sure that they were saying them in the right way because they were actually so ill-educated that they would have put all the stresses on the wrong words and done it all bonkers. In fact, if you read Hamlet... There's a marvellous bit where Prince Hamlet, the aristocrat, uh, tells the actors how to perform the plays within the plays. And he says, speak them as I told you to speak them, do them properly, you're making a mess of it. So it was very important that the learned poet told the unlearned actor exactly how to say the works, how to say the words, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do it. So, so don't come back at me and say he was an actor, therefore he must have been able to read. Um, so back to the question of did he ever say he was the playwright, and my conviction that he never did is because those who knew him would have known, A, that he probably couldn't read or write, B, that even if he was an actor, he had to be told how to make how to say those lines. And therefore, it would only take one person to say, oh, uh, to be or not to be, that is the question. Uh, can, can you explain that line to me, Will? Um, and he wouldn't be able to. And he wouldn't be able to say, well, actually, this is a speech that uh, I wrote drawing it, drawing it from a very uh, learned book by an Italian called Geraldo Cardanus, uh, because he wouldn't know any of this. He wouldn't know what, what it's coming from. He wouldn't know that Venus and Adonis is drawn from the metamorphoses of Ovid, let alone what it meant. And it would only take one of his chums uh, to say, oh, can you explain this line to me? And he would have been outed. So I don't believe that he ever went around saying, I'm William Shakespeare. However, and this is where it gets quite interesting, the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, died in 1604. And almost immediately after his death, uh, 1605, I think, a play comes out called The London Prodigal. Or is it the Yorkshire Tragedy? Well, actually, both come out shortly after his death. Both of these plays come out. And it says on them, on the quarto editions, by William Shakespeare. Now, 
every single person in the world, every scholar, whatever you think of the authorship debate, every single person agrees that these two plays are not by William Shakespeare. Mm. So why do they suddenly come out, one in 1605, one in 1608, they suddenly come out saying, by William Shakespeare on them. Now, even order is just underneath it. It says, as played by the King's Majesty's players. Now, the King's Majesty's players are the theatre troupe that is associated with William Shakespeare of Stratford. Now, this is interesting because what's going on? If these plays are not by William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare of Stratford was William Shakespeare, why doesn't he object? Why, why doesn't he say, hang on, that's not by me? And not only that, it's just like they're being endorsed by, by his company or the company that he's associated with. Mm. Now, a very, very clever scholar uh, called uh, Diana Price, she worked out that he was operating. He's a dealer. William Shakespeare Stratford was a wheeler dealer. And there's no question he invested a little bit of money in the theatre. He invested money in lots of things, in land, in sheep, in lending money, all sorts of things he had his investments in. And one of his investments seems to have been in playbroking. And you say, what the hell is playbroking? Well, there was a real thing, playbroking. Plays were getting more and more popular. And there was a shortage of actual plays and a desperation to get more material in order to act. And it does look as if William Shakespeare of Stratford was getting some old plays and supplying them to the theatres for money and securing the rights in them. And this is something that is corroborated by Ben Jonson in a poem called On Poet Ape, where he talks about a person who would, he doesn't name him, but he talks about a person who would like to be thought of as our chief. Our chief, the chief of the playwrights, who would that be? William Shakespeare. Well, I'm telling you that William Shakespeare is the pseudonym of the Earl of Oxford, who's now dead. Now, this guy, this poet ape, would like to be thought of as our chief, i.e. he would like to be thought of as the Earl of Oxford, who's using the name William Shakespeare. But instead, he's just a playbroker. And this says this in the poem. So there is such a thing as playbroking. He's buying up rights. So I think what William Shakespeare of Stratford did in this instance is he bought up the rights to a couple of old plays, one called The London Prodigal and one called The Yorkshire Tragedy. And he put his name on it because the guy who was using the pseudonym William Shakespeare was dead. The Earl of Oxford died in 1604. So how was he going to object and kick up a fuss and say, how dare you use my pseudonym on your thing? And his name was William Shakespeare. So, so why not? Why not put my name on? And then my place, I bought the rights. That's what I think happened right there. But I don't think Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, wrote a single line of any of it. Nothing. That makes far more sense uh, than the official story. <laughs> well, it does make it makes a lot of sense. And and there's, of course, there's always is. There's more to it because. These Shakespeare quartos, I'm not talking about those two, those two ones that weren't by Shakespeare. They were previous Shakespeare quartos that were coming out. And very often on them, it had things like recently revised by William Shakespeare, or recently expanded, or recently, you know, redone in some way. And all those little messages totally stop at 1604. What's relevant about 1604? The Earl of Oxford dies, so he can't be redoing his plays. And and that's the end of it. And suddenly you get into this new territory where it seems to be a free-for-all. Uh, and there you've got Shakespeare of Stratford even possibly allowing his name to be stuck on two plays that obviously are nothing to do with Shakespeare, etc. So 1604 is a very interesting cut-off date. And uh, a lot of people say to me, oh, can't be the Earl of Oxford, he can't be Shakespeare. Why, I ask? Oh, because the plays were written after 1604. And I say, prove it. And of course they can't. 
they, they can't. They can't any more than I can prove, and I would love to be able to prove, that there were Shakespeare plays knocking around in the 1570s and the early 1580s when William Shakespeare of Stratford, who was born in 1564, was far too young to have written them. And yes, there are little hints and little clues that the Shakespeare plays did exist in these very early times, which are early enough for the Earl of Oxford to have written them and not for, for William of Stratford. But I can't prove it. I can just show the evidence, and it's tantalising. And equally, the Stratfordians, as we call them, at the other end can't prove that the plays were written after 1604, and that, God, they would love to, but they can't. Uh, and that's pretty obvious, really, if you think about it. The people who believe that the Earl of Oxford was the writer of these things are extremely clever people who spend a lot of obsessive time looking <laughs> into this. And if you could really prove that these plays were written after 1604, which completely writes out the Earl of Oxford, we wouldn't we wouldn't all be here and you and I wouldn't be discussing it now, would we? Do you think that um, it's imminent that some more evidence will crop up? Evidence crops up all the time. And I've been hammering away at this for the best part of 15 years. And I remember when I was first doing it and people saying, you're wasting your time. 400 years have passed. You're never going to find anything new. And I was finding new things by the month. I mean, literally. I mean, for instance, that thing I just told you about, the riddle on the thing. I mean, I, I found that out. And it, it was one of many, I would say, major discoveries that which are really impossible to refute. Um, the only way you can refute things like that is to say it's just a coincidence. But, you know, how many times can you just keep saying it's just a coincidence and try and sweep something out under the carpet with the word coincidence before you ask why is that coincidence there and this one and that one and that one? When do a set of coincidences become so many that we stop being babyish and and accept this mountain of... of uh, evidence as as proof for any listeners that would like to lend their skills to the mystery is there an area of the authorship question that you feel needs some more research well as i said i, I think the connection between william of stratford and the earl of oxford i mean it would be absolutely fascinating if we someone could dig more into this there is one theory that they're very, very distant cousins, but I don't buy into it, even if it's correct. Uh, William Stratford's mother was called Arden, and uh, you can wriggle up the Arden pedigrees and find a family called Trussell, and Edward de Vere's grandmother was called Trussell. Uh, there are various problems with it. Is we can't really, with any certainty, go up the Arden pedigree of William of Stratford. We know that the mother was called Mary Arden, and uh, we know the father's her father's name. But I think we we can't. There are a lot of Ardens up there, and I'm sure they do connect somehow. But we can't be absolutely sure how it goes to the great grandfather's generation. So that's one of the problems. Uh, the second problem would be that you have to go very far back, uh, like five or six generations back, to get the link, even if it works, to Stratford, Shakespeare and Arden, uh, sorry, Stratford, Shakespeare and Trussell. And so it would mean that if they were cousins, Stratford, Shakespeare and Edward de Vere, we're talking about sixth or seventh cousins. Most people don't know their sixth or seventh cousin. In fact, nobody does, unless they've really, really studied it. So I, I think the chances of them, Edward de Vere and Stratford, Shakespeare bumping into each other because they knew each other through pedigree is nil to me that's nil nil chance or very 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 minute chance the chances of them bumping into each other through the london theater i think is very high 
I think very high. I think the Earl of Oxford knew all the playwrights at the time. He knew a lot of the actors. He had his own company of players. He was always out of money. William Shakespeare of Stratford was a moneylender who was connected to the theatre in London. So I think the chances of Edward de Vere not knowing about him at all are pretty remote. I think he would have definitely known of him. I'm pretty sure he probably met him. Um, I've got a theory that Sonnet, is it Sonnet 81? I think it is. I can't remember the top of my head. Is actually written by Edward de Vere as Shakespeare to William of Stratford. Um, I haven't got the sonnet in front of me, but I, I can synopsize it a bit. It starts something, words to these effects. I'll, I'll paraphrase it because I can't remember it exactly. It starts, words to the effect, either uh, I will die before you or you will die before me. But either way, your name will live on in my works. Now, people say, oh, he's talking to the Earl of Southampton. But the Earl of Southampton's not, name isn't, is, is, is not in those poems, not once in any of them. He's the dedicatee, but, but that seems to be a long... We don't know when it was written in relation to that. The only name that has lived through those works is the name William Shakespeare. So why is he saying, either I'll die before you or you'll die before me, and either way, your name will live? And in the same sonnet sequence, he says, my name be buried where my body is. So clearly the poet is burying his own name. He wants to bury his own name, and somebody else's name will live in those works. Well, there's only one person whose name has lived in those works, and that name is William Shakespeare. It's the name of William Shakespeare of Stratford. So my hunch is that that sonnet, I keep saying, I hope I'm right about 81. I haven't looked it up. I think it's 81. That sonnet is addressed slightly figuratively, by Edward de Vere as William Shake-Spear to William Shakespeare of Stratford. If we've got any listeners, hello out there, if you're just joining us for the first time and this is all very new to you, Alexander, could you recommend a book? Because it's a, it's a minefield of all the different books out there. They're all wonderful, but a particular book that they could start with to learn. Yes. Um, is it in print, though? My favourite book which is so good, and written by a man called George Greenwood, who is an MP, and a liberal MP, and a lawyer, and very clever. And he doesn't, in the book, try and claim he knows who Shakespeare is, but he completely demolishes the case for William of Stratford. And that book is called The Shakespeare Problem Restated, and it was published in 1908. Knowing the modern world, you can still buy it. You can probably buy it in paperback because nowadays they, they just photograph them, don't they? And you can yes. well, buy almost anything out of print. And that book's wonderful because he's got such a sense of humour as well and he writes so well and he's so erudite and clever and he doesn't belabour you with the great problem of who wrote it and he just demolishes. If you want a more modern and update one, I very much recommend Diana Price's. I've mentioned it once, I think, already, and it's called Shakespeare's Unorthodox Biography. She, once again, doesn't pick a candidate for the writer, uh, but she shows by clever, erudite, scholarly, not so humorous, but easy easy to read, the reasons why who, who William of, of Stratford was. She goes into his business dealing. She says, this is the biography of William of Stratford if we really just stuck to what we actually have about him, the actual uh, documents of his time. If we stuck to that, this is his biography. It's got nothing to do with writing poems. Uh, and I would very strongly recommend that one. 
And the internet is is a wonderful place, and I'm sure there are some also some very good sites. I mean, I I don't want hugely to blow my own trumpet, but I've 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 got a, a YouTube channel, uh, which has had over a million views now, in which I give lectures. You're lucky enough you don't see my hideous face; you just hear my voice, and I do some slightly animated um, animated pictures. They're fantastic! Yes, for anyone listening, well, please go and find them and watch them. Well, you? thank you. They're 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 proving quite popular, and and what I've done in those is look at contemporary evidence showing that everybody at the time actually knew that William Shakespeare was a pseudonym. And I go through them one by one by one. And this is just about to be turned in also into an enormous book, three volumes, which I've co-written with my learned friend, Roger Stripmatter, who's an American professor. And the most astonishing thing about this is when you look carefully at what people wrote about William Shakespeare at the time, the first and most obvious thing is none of them are associating him with a wool dealer from Stratford-upon-Avon. That's obvious. But what's more interesting is there are all, all of them, going nudge, nudge, wink, wink, it's a pseudonym, don't you know? Mm. All of them are doing it. And if you go to your standard English literature professor today and say, what do you make of this contemporary remark about William Shakespeare? They say, oh, I don't really understand it, I'm afraid. It's rather recondite. It's a bit cryptic. And this one too, yes, yes, this one is a bit cryptic. And this one, oh, yeah, this one, yeah, that's a bit cryptic. So then you say, well, well wait a minute, wait a minute. Is everybody writing cryptically about all other poets at the time? Or are they just writing cryptically about William Shakespeare? Oh, no, it's just William Shakespeare. Uh, so, OK, so what was it about William Shakespeare that was prohibited from overt expression at the time? Why, why talk cryptically about him? Why, why don't we just say William Shakespeare is the son of a wool dealer? He's come down from Stratford-upon-Avon. Oh, he writes these wonderful poems. Why, why not just say that? Why write cryptically? Why write in this veiled, covered way? Now, once you know, a bit like when I said to you, once you know there's a riddle hidden in that thing, once you know he's saying read if you can, work out if you can who he's buried with, once you know there's a mystery there, it's actually quite easy to solve it. So once you know that William Shakespeare is a pseudonym, then you go back to all those contemporary allusions of people writing about William Shakespeare cryptically, and you say, well, why are they writing in this mad cryptic way? Then you can see the answer's there. They're always using the same things. It's the odd little hint, nudge, wink, double meaning of a word. You know, there, there's only a limit to the number of techniques that they're able to use to preserve the truth, which is the key to everything, and not tell a lie not be caught out telling an overt truth, yet preserve the truth for people who are learned and inquiring enough to want to look into it, and to hell with the rest. Everyone else can go off in the wrong direction if they wish. I think we need to do a, um, definitely need to do a part two Yeah. To continue this further. Yeah. If, by the way, I can't remember now what it's called, if, if anybody wants to, to see some follow-up on that last point, on the sort of cheatiness of Stratford-upon-Avon, I put a video online. But everyone can find your channel. You can find my channel. It's just called Alexander War. Um, and I highly recommend checking out all of Alexander's videos. They are very easy to watch. And yeah, they are all amazing. So thank you so much for today. You're very welcome. Wonderful. Would you like me to do a very fast and quick plug for the De Vere Society? Yes, please. I only mention that because I'm currently the chairman of the De Vere Society. And the De Vere Society is an English uh, charity and an educational uh, charity at that which puts forward the case for Edward de Vere as uh, William Shakespeare 
And we pay for research and people to go out and look in libraries and help them writing books and help communicate a lot of this stuff. And you can find our website online. It's called the Devere Society co.uk isn't it and you know we're always keen if the people are excited by the subject would like to be members you don't have to be fully committed to the idea that edward de vere was shakespeare but uh just sniff around our, our site and there are lots of activities we've got a wonderful thing coming on in october uh, derek jacob is going to be there and mark rylance and we're going to have some speeches about william shakespeare in connection to the first folio which is uh 400 years it's the anniversary isn't it the centenary of the yes. first folio this year so yeah, to be a society plug. Please, could you share our podcast with anyone you think that will find it interesting? And we thank you, Alexander. We will be back again soon with part two. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Massively my pleasure too. Thanks, Maudie.